A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. If you don't know the significance of the phrase, worthy, turn back. there this is cross i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club i think last week crossland i think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago we talked about how you decided that every end of the week is a downbeat and how it's pretty easy to do with this book it got really fucking easy to do with this book, Crossland. <laughs> it got really fucking easy to end on a downbeat, huh? Uh, didn't it? Didn't it? Isn't this, isn't this a bit of a downbeat? Oh, a little oh bit. man. We only got like a hundred pages left after this, man. Like literally two weeks. And we're done. That's wild. wild. That's yeah. absolutely insane. Cause fucking ridiculous. Then what are we going to do? We know what we're also, gonna do. yeah, we know we know exactly what we're going to do. But also, like, um, there's so much shit left to talk about <laughs> in all contexts. Like, I'm pretty sure I, as far as I'm concerned, this is the end of the book. We're done. <laughs> Pack it up, folks. <laughs> no, it was, it's, not, it's not like the next page is part four or anything. <laughs> yeah, no. no, not at all. It is the end. Um, the end for us all. <laughs> I think I really like how this whole section ended. Mm-hmm. But we'll get there. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So today is our 12th episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapters 74 through 77. But first, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having? Well, I looked through my beer cellar. I'm like, I know I've got something that's applicable here. And from 2013, worthy, it is Worthy Adversary by Fulton Brewing Company. It's their 2013 release. It is a Russian Imperial Stout, not barrel aged or anything. Nine and a half percent. And on the front of the bottle, an unchecked aggression of dark flavors. This rich stout is about drawing a line in the sand. Um, it is so smoky. I don't know. I don't know why, like not in an aggressive way, but like that's one of the predominant flavors when I taste this. It's, it's got a good body. It's got some good roast notes, but roast kind of leans into smoke a little bit in this case. And it's really good. Hmm. I would have guessed that this would have been barrel aged. I think they do a barrel aged version of it, but it is very well balanced, very smooth. It, it's been sitting in the bottle for eight years, so I'd hope so. But yeah, I'm really, really impressed with it. So um, I, that's all I've got right now. I think if I run out of this, I'll probably sip on some vodka because that was. Uh, <laughs> we, we were asking for recommendations for drinks for this week, and Ivana suggested an entire bottle of vodka. 
and she she said I could hold the pills. I don't have to go full Ephraim for this one, but um, I might sip on some vodka if I run out of this. But I don't think that'll be too much of a problem. We um we definitely you know like we don't want to shoot down anyone's idea, but we do need PJ to function by the end of the show. Yeah, I <laughs> fucked myself up well enough. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but absolutely it feels like an entire bottle of vodka is necessary to uh to kind of round out this episode because jesus christ oof Oof. what have you got crossland so today in honor of ephraim and sefi (laughs) dying uh i have a drink that is kind of called out i mean it's not called out inside of the book or anything but it is reminiscent it was suggested by one of our patrons artificer uh who suggested a blood eagle so what it is is it is one and a half ounces of aquavit and and the recommendation on the recipe of people that had commented it and built it built it is if you don't have the particular brand of aquavit that they were calling for to instead use a vodka and kind of do 50 50 on them instead I did gin because gin is vodka. I mean, sure. It is. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean at, at its core, <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, so I, I was just like, you know, I actually didn't have vodka when I went and looked and I had a lot of these other things and I went and picked up the one thing that I didn't have, the Fernet Valet. Um, so, yeah, whole thing. So anyway, one and a half ounces of Aquavit and gin combined. So half of each. One ounce of sherry, a fourth ounce of cherry concentrate, half an ounce of Campari, one bar spoon of Fernet Valette, which is kind of like a mix of herbs. It gives me a really nutty feel, but I, I was just reading what's actually in it, and it is like cardamom and cinnamon. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's kind of nutty and spicy. It must just be like getting blended up so much with the cherry concentrate and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're, what you're supposed to do is do a one like twisted orange peel and then one twisted grapefruit peel and kind of peel them together like um you know bloody wings from hacked away back ribs pulled upwards um instead i just took a single orange peel and kind of cut it into the uh the wing formation so Ah, i see that in the picture yep yeah yep yeah so that's why i've got kind of the weird bow tie i try it looks more like a bow tie you're right (laughs) (laughs) It does look more like a bow tie. I did it three different times and I chose the best one. So here we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Literally murdered an entire orange in order to get here. So tore out its spine and everything. But yeah, I'm following that up with a beer from New Anthem Brewing out of Wilmington called Anthem Break uh, or Amen Break, which is a uh, big, big thing in music that's referred to, but it's Mosaic and Eldorado and Citra Hops. It's very... Um, it's not a lactose IPA, but it does have like kind of a creamy feel to the whole thing. I'm wondering how they achieved that, but it's, it's really good. Okay. I think it's just good because deal. it's sweet. Like it's not strictly cream, but you know. Yeah. You can, you can get away with some, some flavors like that with some very specific water treatment, some little additives here and there. Maybe that makes, that pillow-y. makes some sense. Yeah. Pillowy is probably even a better word. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what I'm having today. Good deal. Sounds good. So with that, we'll move into last week's predictions. And PJ, we get to pay off a couple of them today. Do we? Ready? Know? We do. We do. The first up here is, is there an Oscar money mole in the all tribe leadership? You said. Uh, yes, I think there are two, both Xenophon and Valdir. 
You went one and one, so we both drink. All right. Yep. You know, I mean, but you you were on Xenophon like a fly on ship, man. Yeah, I was not trusting him. Yep. I don't. Yeah, I didn't trust him for very long. <laughs> no, no, you're you're pretty much immediately like, nah, no way, can't be, <laughs> can't be that guy. So yeah, yep. definitely, definitely a great call out there. Um, which you know, big deal. Uh, the next is one from last week, and it says. <laughs> and I quote in the way that it's asked. I mean, really, the only thing left to ask here is what's next for Lyria and Victra, giving Harmony's promise of a torch ship and destruction. The band is back together, baby. She's seeing blips on the radar, so I think they'll most like be most likely be taking cover and watching a ship battle above them, assuming their saviors are able to get through the aperture. We don't know how they were like faring, but um, definitely a space battle above them. Mm-hmm. And definitely the band's back together. But I was talking about Lyria, Victra, and Volga at that point. I mean, but they're also back together. So I think you're kind of right in almost all contexts. The only issue I would say with your correctness is that we don't see any of this from Lyria's perspective. So we don't know. Right. You know? Not yet. We might we might jump back to it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. Could Could happen. For sure. So I will take a drink, though for your sake because effectively you know everyone was alive at one point yeah for a little bit for a hot sack all right so we got those knocked out of the way with that let's get into the chapters mm-hmm. so we start off here with chapter 74 ephraim son of the rising we open up this week, of course, with a low-to-the-ground space battle with Ephraim Snowball leading the charge against the Red Hand's woefully understaffed and underutilized torch ship. But the most excellent part is just how good of a pilot Pax is. It's fantastic to kind of see him, you know, get to exercise these skills that have kind of been hinted at and shown a little bit. Yeah. I knew his pod racer background would come in handy somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's super impressive, though. And he's there's a couple points where it mentions he's got some, like, beads of sweat And he seems a little bit nervous, but Mm -hmm. he's super confident otherwise. And it makes me assume that either he had some pretty crazy simulations growing up, or maybe he even had an opportunity to like learn how to fly ships in some sort of supervised way as a kid. Cause this is, I would, I'm, I'm assuming simulations because I think they talk about simulations quite a bit Mm -hmm. early on. Um, but who knows? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that it's it's just nice to kind of see him what feels like in his element. And I think the other part of this is that they, they kind of have made mention of and shown that other colors can pilot things. They just don't do it as well, right? Like Ephraim's like, I can fly a ship. I just can't fly it as well as a blue can. I can't also man all of the cannons at the same time as flying a ship. Yeah. So, you know, we see kind of a proper skill utilization for the most part mm-hmm. on and the part see- of... Uh, We see the uh, sort of opposite side of that with the torch ship that they're fighting against. Like, well, Mm -hmm. it's understaffed and they don't have blues, so they're all manually running down the hallways trying to fire. It doesn't fucking work that well. Which is why this little shitty ship, I mean, not not really shitty. It's a fast ship. It's a good ship, but it's not meant to do what it's doing, right? Like, and that's why they're managing to kind of pull this off. It's kind of like an advanced rip wing of sorts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not a full one, right? Yep. Yep. It's not the Necromancer, correct? Correct. The Necromancer okay. is a different ship that was at the beginning of this novel. 
Darrow. Yeah, I, I know. I just didn't know for sure, and that never got brought up. But I know that was a bigger ship. Yes. Yeah, that was kind of a, a different, not a Corvette, but still like a slightly larger ship. Mm-hmm. More stable. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of, another one of quick ships. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just everything is was Quicksilver's at one point or another. But yeah. I, I also think that this this combat is like literally perfectly visualized. You know, you can imagine the waves and the water slapping the underside of the ship as it's described. The angle of turns that the snowball takes underneath the torch ship and the rockets and particle cannons flying past and blasting apart different spaceships as as they're kind of moving. It It's very reminiscent of Desert Sun that he did for uh, the Star Wars collection as well. And I yes. think that that is just so cool. So we talked about this before, I think. Well, obviously, we covered that short story as one of our short pours. But we talked about this in context of the timing between when he was writing that and when he was writing other works. And if it Mm -hmm. had any sort of influence. Do you remember when he was writing Desert Sun and how that like matched up with these novels? Like, was this directly influenced by that sort of mindset? So Desert Sun was published in 2017. So I think when we were kind of going through and talking about it, the assumption was that it was kind of written probably in like 2016. So probably okay. right after or around when he was finishing Morningstar. Um, okay. Or, you know, just shortly after he'd finished Morningstar. So before the Iron Gold saga really was um, was complete or published. Gotcha. Okay. Obviously, it's mind. still not complete. So that, yeah, you know. No, it's not. But I mean, still, it clearly like when you write something and you write it well, it'll it'll influence you. It'll hold over. You know, I don't think that there's a yeah. wrong assumption there. Yeah, that's fair. He's clearly kind of, it, it does clearly evoke. He made the pod racing joke. It clearly evokes that. Feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. The the victory here is also kind of like a well one thing. We get to see all these reds celebrate packs. And I think it's just sort of. A warm feeling, a coming of home, a full circle moment for this family of Darrow Olykos and this this moment where we kind of see the color kind of rise up in praise. And it's it's just it's great to see this kind of, you know, especially for a kid who's kind of considered an outcast even among because he doesn't he doesn't have a color. He's of that generation. Yeah, Um, it's it's an interesting spot for him to be in. And even if he was like of a different or of the earlier generation when there was colors, he'd be a half breed. Mm-hmm. So even then he'd be an outcast or, or at least a different person. But that said, the fact that they're all singing the song of per- Persephone is pretty wonderfully fitting as well. Like it just, the whole thing felt really good. Oh yeah. Yeah. It felt very, very, like I said, it felt, it felt warm. It felt, It felt like something that never really happened to Darrow. You know, like we never saw Darrow get to like celebrate with his color in a way. Yeah. You know, there was none of that. And this kind of has that sort of this is for Mars kind of a feeling. Mm -hmm. The only real celebration we ever saw was with gold. Mm -hmm. Well, and when Pax was brought to him, you know, I mean, yeah, there was that and family. But yeah, not not a whole lot there in terms of the, the sort of reuniting with this color that we've been presented with it probably happened but you know yeah the reunion that that follows that as well is also a very well-earned moment we've been chasing around pax and electra you know away from the family for the entirety of this book and most of the last book and they're finally reunited with victra lyria laughing of course of course it was ephraim that heard the call and that did the the 
transmission, that sort of tone and way that she's speaking is also reminiscent and kind of fun in a playful way. And, of course, Volga. Dear sweet Volga in Ephraim's reunion and is coming to terms with the fact that she's been a foundational aspect of his life and so important, his home. It's a very happy moment punctuated with some sad beats, especially when Victra stalks off to the tree line to find her dead son sobbing. But mm-hmm. I've, I've been trying to figure out the right way to describe Ephraim's like feelings in this moment. Cause it's really kind of hard. It's hard to describe. It's really kind of weird because he mentions dreading meeting Volga. It's, it's not anticipation. There's quite a bit of guilt associated with like the last time he saw her. I think it's basically him doing whatever he can to avoid any sort of hope, like any sort of anticipation. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's such a strange emotion to describe and I can't figure out what word to put to it. I might be just missing something completely like obvious, but do you have a sort of read on how, how you would describe that emotion? Hmm. It's not like, it's not like melancholy, right? Cause he's, he's more affirmative about it. It's, it's kind of a sort of, man, I don't want to say finality, but like an acceptance of something that he had been like putting off forever. You know, like kind of, mm-hmm. hmm. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, he's like coming to even, terms even with it. Even up to the point where she's like calling his name, he wants to, he, he says he, he won't look cause he doesn't want to, he doesn't want his ears to deceive him or something like that. I can't remember the quote. It was more elegant than that was, but man, I, it is, it is a powerful emotion and I feel it. I just don't know what word it is. I see. I thought you were talking about later when he's when he's kind of dealing in the emotions or like thinking about him that way, because <clears throat> that that feels more like he's kind of reconciling his feelings against reality um, or his like preconceptions against reality. But that's sort of I don't know. It's anticipatory, right? Like he's. Yeah, it's a fear, right? Um, yeah, he says dread, he's like he said. It. Yep. But he's also like hopeful, but he's trying not to be hopeful. And he's looking forward to seeing her and he loves her, but he doesn't want to be let down. It's guarded, I guess. Yeah, guarded. Guarded's probably the right way. A better way of saying that. I'd agree with that. He's being protective of himself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like he kind of has been the whole time, especially because he thought that she was dead and then like admitted that she was dead and kind of was dealing with that. And then here's the transmission and suddenly there's a chance and he doesn't want to be deceived, and so he doesn't turn until it's a sure thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, it is a profound feeling <clears throat> for sure. And I'm sorry, folks. I must be like very suddenly getting sick. I also have like bit my cheek earlier very hard, and so I'm having a tough time talking. So we're we're doing that our best over here. That is the weirdest ailment to bring up. Hearts a lot. <laughs> Because you talk, you know, like, and it's right, it's like on the front near my lips, so it's like right there. Not that you could see where my teeth were, but pointing. I dare you to take a swig of vodka and swish it around in the front of your face. I fucking already did that. It didn't help. I did it with the whiskey, though, before the show. Speaking of, love this quote. I think it's my favorite quote of the past in the book so far. Um, <laughs> there are just so many that are so great, so maybe that's not true, but for the week at the very least... Make mine with whiskey. She brings me coffee made of coffee. Passive aggressive little shit. <laughs> and it's just it's just so fun, you know, and it's it's very <sighs> in the end, 
going to miss Ephraim, especially for these beats of humor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially in this book where Severo has been almost entirely absent. He has been the humor in the story. And it's there's even more seriousness to Ephraim than there is to Severo. Mm-hmm. But I think that makes the humor hit a little bit harder sometimes. Mm-hmm. More honesty, for sure. Yeah. More As grit. To outlandish po- memory. Exactly. It, it's it's less uh, yeah outlandish. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Good word. I thought memory was the better word, but yeah. Memory is... For sure. I don't know if it's a word. Does that count? I, think, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I said it. That makes yeah, it a word, right? It doesn't. I am Nostradamus, BJ. Leave me alone. All right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but does this count based on our rules, based on our drinking rules, which really hasn't come into play a whole lot in this story, this this whole series? Like, there have been a handful, but we there's a... Very small number of drinking scenes in this series. Does mm-hmm. this count as one? Or do we explicitly not get to drink right here? <laughs> I, I think we explicitly don't drink here. Okay. <laughs> because they don't drink, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Because of that, I don't think we drink. All right. Intentionally. I'm with you. Now All I right. gotta like wait until the next question to take my natural sip of beer. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. This, I mean, these are just like such good scenes that can, or that, that like happen here between the two of them and sort of the, the sharing and kind of the mutual catching up and, and these emotions that are shared are, are fantastic. Of course, she's sent away. Pax brings in a box with a huge reveal and a choice for Ephraim. One to leave, given kind of the content of the holodrop, and pin it all on Xenophon and to help Sefi realize who she's being deceived by, or to stay and kind of just completely ignore this information and continue with her friends. But I think there's a lot of other like poignant moments that happen here, the returning of Trigg's ring, first and foremost, from Ephraim, as well as some conversations with Volga, talking about you know what he desires, the, the feeling of home, and sort of the importance that she has to him, and sort of acknowledging his errors and things like that. But all of this is kind of signaling that he's sober and become a good and kind of changed man here. Yeah, definitely. In retrospect, after this entire section, it's a wonderful send-off and sort of wrap-up between Pax and Ephraim. It's the culmination of their journey together and the amount of growth that Ephraim's undergone and to an extent, the amount of growth that Pax has received as well, but mostly, mostly Ephraim. He's, he's completely turned his life around and his outlook is completely different than it was initially. So it's a good bookend in that, in that sense. It, it definitely is. It's got this, you know, it, when you when you think about writing and you think about characters arcs and any kind of story, you always want to look for that like change, right? I think we talked a little bit about this last week, maybe or the week before, but you're always looking for the change that a character makes uh, to kind of progress themselves forward emotionally. And sort of this is this is the acknowledgement, this returning of the ring that Ephraim has kind of completed his journey in a way and that he is a as a person has fundamentally been changed by the story, by the world, by you know what's gone on around him and the choices that he's made so it's also sad and final <laughs> it's also <laughs> sad and final that's true yeah but everything right. in this section is sad and final 
So I don't know if we can linger on that too much in every single question. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's the other part of it, right? Like we do get a lot of time with Volga here. Um, in, in a second, we'll talk more about that, of course. But the the sort of conversations with Volga doesn't feel as final as the conversation with Pax. You know what I mean? It does the second read through, though. And I mean, it's because we know, but also just because reading, reading it, reading it a second time or a third time, it really changes the tone in which you read Ephraim's voice in. And that completely changes the, the feeling of the, of the words and of the conversation as a whole. I can, I can definitely understand that with Volga's though. That's where I feel differently about it personally. The reason I say that is because he's more coming to terms with how he like feels a, about her, you know, and the way that he mm-hmm. should have felt about her and admitted to feeling um, for their for their friendship, for their, you know, Atia, the tribe that he has. Yeah. Um, and and that doesn't feel quite as final so much as it does an admittance. Finally, like Ephraim has yeah. never been one to say, I have friends. Now he's like, I can admit that I have friends the it, the discussion with Pax though does feel final specifically because of the heart spike right, right. specifically so, because it's being delivered and he kind of has an inkling of where it's going to go so for me the the part that changed from not quite final to final was his promise to be back for breakfast see i think he actually meant the breakfast thing especially because with that he says later part? he's like i don't, I don't think i'm going to make it back to breakfast you know okay. yeah that's true you're right. I think he, he was I think he was truly and fully intending to make it back back to breakfast. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, just because he was carrying the bomb doesn't mean it was a full suicide weapon, you know, like it wasn't always intended to be suicide. It could have been any other number of like planting and running away and you know. It just felt like at that point he knew it was a very real possibility. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And he already Definitely had admitted. it made when he was talking to Volga. Which is why it kind of feels a little bit different on a second or third read through. I I would agree and say at the very least he got everything out that he wanted to get out, you know, but I don't think that he was like sitting there and lamenting not ever coming back. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Like he said everything so that he wouldn't regret anything in death kind of a thing, but like not that he planned on dying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I feel like that matches his character, right? Like Darrow would be someone who would die and then like be like, oh, I didn't do this or oh, I didn't do that. And Ephraim's like, no, fuck that. I'm going to make sure that like all of this is accomplished. And I mean, just to kind of break away and move forward a little bit right here. We're speaking as if we know that Ephraim's dead. Right. We don't. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Sure. He could be, he could be very robot like. Who needs a heart? Who needs a spine? Not a robot. <laughs> I hate you. Moving on to something <laughs> a little bit closer in proximity <laughs> than than the death, the gruesome death that happens later. More um, gruesome death, a gruesome death of a different character, and it's more correct. immortalization. Yeah. Ugh. Um. The meeting of Trig. That that Volga finally gets to meet Trig, gets to meet this statue of Trig that's erected in Attica where where he was originally killed, you know, where he died to save Darrow, I, I think is a really tough moment, especially as he leaves Volga, promising that he's going to be back for breakfast, right? Like, yeah, 
it, it does kind of add that sort of weight to it. But kind of like I said, I feel like this is that culmination moment. You, you made mention of it earlier, too, with with kind of Pax and the way that he's built been built up over the last two books. The, this feels like cul- this feels like the culmination of his story arc and kind of his real way of acknowledging that this is his tribe. This is his Eta, as it said, and his people that, you know, he is going to fight for and realistically also give his life to protect. Beyond that, just regarding the statue and the the monument itself, I think he starts to see Volga's perspective a little bit clearer than he would have in the past. Mm-hmm. It It's better to have Trigg elevated to this position rather than showing sort of the lackluster reality of his death. It was pretty mm-hmm. brutal. It was pretty gruesome and it was really not that heroic. It it was it was heroic, but it didn't it wasn't cinematically heroic. He was like just swatted sense. off a cliff face. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. And his initial response to Volga kind of disagreeing with his sort of I don't know, just surliness towards the entire thing. He initially kind of responds with a little bit of contempt, but he does pretty quickly open up to a little bit more grace in that in that respect. And I think he's with all of the growth and all of the change that he's gone through, I think he's finally able to kick that surliness a little bit. And it's it's cool to see. Yeah. I, I would agree. I think that that's a good way of ca- calling that out. It's like he is kicking that surliness. He is, you know, finally adopting a tone that is kind of loving with the people that he shouldn't treat like shit. Not that he's not going to make jokes like the like the whiskey joke, you know, like yeah. he's still going to it's still his personality. It's still there. He just doesn't have to be a jerk about it. Yeah, it, it it's so. not so much about the exact way he died. It's about what he died for and what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And why not elevate him? Why not make him look as her- as heroic as he was? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where I-, I think he's starting to see it. I think he's starting to understand it from that perspective a little bit more in this scene. Man, all we're doing is talking about Ephraim dying this week. <laughs> that's all that happens this week. Crosslinks. I know. I know. I know. We don't see also- any other perspectives. We see Ephraim cradle to grave. <laughs> it's true we do only sit with ephraim all right so with that we move into chapter 75 ephraim grarnir i just realized that there's a second r in that by the way i've been calling it granir this whole time it's grarnir at the very least third granir i think is how they pronounce it in the audiobook but i i i agree i think that's wrong and i'm too mushy mouth to say it properly so i don't know i'm also too mushy mouth to say it properly partially because of i'm gonna blame it on the cheek injury again <laughs> oh no i i think me as sober as a stone i'm too mushy mouth to say it properly so mm. not even not even gonna attempt it how do you say Louisville? louisville 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 Louisville? I'm not that mushy mouth. No, that's how it's supposed to be said. Yeah, no, it's not supposed to be said. Just the people that live there are fucking ridiculous. <laughs> it's, that's how it's pronounced. But yes, yeah, I would agree. It's funny that it's Louisville in Kentucky and it's Louisville in Colorado. Louisville, I think, is Louisville. proper. Oh, man. Anyway, so with that, we are in to chapter 75. Oh, maybe it's Louisville. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it 
that's there's a there's a possible answer there pj you might be onto something for sure <laughs> it's lou hermy one is from louis villi and oh, no. i won't know anything otherwise oh no so we're breaking back into Griff- Griffinhold, and Ephraim wakes up an old drunk friend by pouring some wine all over his face. He also finds out that there's been a great betrayal among the ranks and that Xenophon is the only one she listens to any longer. She, of course, being Sefi. They arrive at their plan to use use the Scuggy to help free Valdir the Unshorn. First, though, I think we need to drink for him pouring all the wine on his face from like above, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, I don't. Right? Does like, it count as drinking? I mean, he'd probably at the very least like lick his face or cheek or something, right? Like he'd probably yeah suck it out of the bed if he had to. Yeah, drunk bitch. All right, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so drinking for you, Cheers. Osgard. Later, Osgard the blind. <laughs> All right, Osgard the something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they obviously like arrive at kind of the plan to use the Scuggy to uh, to break out Valdir so they can kind of make a statement and discuss the hollow drop with Sefi. It was, it was a pretty interesting conversation though, because they were pretty adamant about the fact that using the Scuggy would be a horrible betrayal and probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't work anyway. Things look pretty dead in the water at this point from my perspective. The first time I read through it, as far as like, Ephraim's goals went it didn't seem like there was any way things would actually pan out properly like it, it seemed like they wouldn't get one or two steps farther than this yeah and I mean they do ultimately convince the Scuggy right like the Scuggy are helping them at the same time that he's going and having the conversation with Xenophon yeah right so like clearly I agreed it, it felt like it was hmm okay well you kind of he was kind of running on thin ice right out the bat, but like, what do you do? Are you going to just fucking leave when you're already there? Like abandoned ship? No. So he mm-hmm. tries to press forward and kind of work out a plan and, you know, continues, continues onward. So yeah. Right. It's, it's definitely a like tough call to make, you know, he's trying to do the right thing, but everything's kind of going wrong and he's still like pushing forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair. The moment of the bridge with Pax's old bodyguard Braga is a wonderful moment that showcases some of the changes we've highlighted in Pierce's writing that's happened. Dude is super clinical with these like visual scenes and motifs. The gravity mine as well is like totally reminiscent of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when they're in the forest and being like launched upwards and pulled back down and launched upwards and pulled back down. Um, and just the way that he kind of shows the execution of the whole scene is just fantastic, I think. Yeah. Um. The more you talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 2, the more I'm not sure if I've actually seen it. Like, I don't know if I have. I feel like I've seen it. Do you remember Kurt Russell? Yes. Okay. That was in the second one? Yeah, that was in the second one. What was the first one about? First one was about uh, the... I thought that was the first one. ...and the dancing. No, that's the second one, for sure. Kurt Russell isn't in the first one? No, not at all. Okay. All right, so I have seen it. I don't remember a lot of the references you bring up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so okay. I think I'll need to rewatch. Now I guess both of them, because I thought <laughs> Kurt Russell was just in the first one. No, no, he's the villain of the second one. But he does... Is he a villain? He's, he's a bad guy, man. He's uh, an okay guy. 
No. He's barely a guy. He is a being. He's a living planet, yes. He is a yes. planet. Um, right, right. Planets can't be bad. But he, like... Planets just are, Crossland. He's, like, the ultimate uh, father-went-to-the-gas-station-and-never-came-back guy, you know? Like, he did that for thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of different species. Like, fucked Isn't someone, all left of the kid, creation? ran away, and then killed them. Isn't that all of creation, though? <laughs> like, if you prescribe to any sort of god theory, isn't that every god? Well, <laughs> daddy's going to come home eventually. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going to go home to daddy, is what it is. <laughs> or, or that. Hypothetically. Yeah, I mean, one way or another, depending on, you know, <laughs> proximity. I mean, fair point. Fair point. But yeah. yeah. But anyway, point point of the story is I should go watch Guardians of the Galaxy again. Yes, yes, so that you can imagine how good of a writer Pierce is. <laughs> this um, is me pouring so out the, the rest of my beer <laughs> so I can, like, take your insults <laughs> on my chin. <laughs> oh, man. So we enter the room and Xenophon is... <laughs> is listening to a recording of a tall, thin, and recognizable to us gold. We know him as Atlas Alrod, and he is promising them glory upon the completion of their task, uniting the obsidian and calling him into the fold. Of course, there's also mention of receiving the Iron Pyramid, and there it is again, Iron, Cold Iron. So, um, Iron Pyramid. Mm -hmm. I feel like this has been mentioned before. It sounds so familiar, but I can't place where it would have come from. Like, I, I know, I know for a fact that there are other instances of that phrase. Like, it's just sticking to my mind. Like, are there, has this been mentioned before? What is the Iron Pyramid? Has it been mentioned before? So it's, it's kind of tough to break out what the Iron Pyramid exactly is. Um, it's only been mentioned in theory, three or four times. So uh, originally in Iron Gold, when Darrow's coming back, there's a little quote. Our saviors looked more like lunatic Laurel. Sorry, backing up. Our saviors looked more like manic Laurel Tide jesters than soldiers draped with the trophies of gray and blonde hair and pyramid iron pyramid badges. Sling blades and spiked red helmets were painted on their chests. Our the saviors? question. Our Is saviors. That, yes. Our saviors. Have iron pyramid badges. Yeah, because I think he's talking about uh, howlers behind him in the moment. Okay. Okay. That seems weird. That seems yeah. like a weird like cross section. Yeah, I think the tough part is is like, do you read the the iron pyramid badges as trophies, meaning that they're like a society remnant thing that's picked up, which would make some sense because the reference here to the iron pyramid is. Uh, quoting Atlas here, when you return to the fold, you will be honored by the dictator with the Iron Pyramid. It will be much deserved. Destroy this message upon receipt. Per Aspera ad Astra. That doesn't that doesn't seem the same. That right. Doesn't, that doesn't seem connected. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's tough to specifically say right if there is are, a direct connection. Are those the only two? mentions of it so th uh, the third mention is when we're in lysander's perspective in iron gold 
um, <clears throat> kind of in the middle of the story after he's been picked up by Romulus for the first time and brought to the the secluded castle on the asteroid before it's been revealed that you know they've uh, uh, of what uh, Serafina knows right because she's going into exile permanently and they'll likely be killed. That's kind of what's about to happen. So the quote here is the place is abandoned except for Romulus's soldiers and the fortress's other two breeds of denizens. Denizens, robed obsidians with bare feet and bald heads with iron pyramids emblazoned on their simple gray robes and several white hierophants who wear strange perukes made of coarse blue and black hair. Um, that seems even more disconnected, but at least it's still like the rim. Yeah, the, so I think the, the important the thing other, to recognize like that's is two, that. That's one of them. Like, two of them are connected to the rim. The other one's not. They're both connected to the society, right? They're all connected. It's the pyramid. Of course it's connected to the society. Well, the fourth one is from Dark Age. There's a fourth. Okay, <laughs> okay. So the fourth one is uh, when we're in Mustang's perspective in the day of red doves doves is happening. Right. And this is the most distant of them. So it's probably not even worth bringing up. No violence. She repeats just before a red man caves her head in with an iron Vox pyramid on the end of a wooden pole. So it seems as though they're being very specific about the Vox pyramid, but why use the same, you know, symbol of the oppressor in a way. Iron Vox pyramid. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Are they just not connected and like it's just kind of happenstance that they all kind of meet up in that way? Like the first one, the first one you mentioned, other than the one that we're reading right now, gave me very much like Third Reich Iron Cross vibes. Mm hmm. And yeah. not so, Yeah, not, which is why it makes sense that the Howlers are coming back with them as trophies. Right? Yeah. So, so not so much. It's significant that they're iron, but more just that was the aesthetic of the uniform. And I I think that that fits also the sort of later statement, right, where, you know, you'll be honored by the dictator with the iron pyramid. You could think of it as the the cross or the um, uh, that seems more whichever way. That seems more specific. That seems more direct. I don't know. I don't it, just in my mind that doesn't seem like if it if it didn't matter what material it was and it was just for aesthetics, I don't think they'd say iron. I think they'd just say the pyramid. Yeah, but, but I think an iron pyramid so like think about like a medal of honor, right? Like that's where I think that this is going. Yeah, they don't say the gold medal of honor. They say the medal of honor. No, but as opposed to a pyramid badge, it's an iron pyramid badge as opposed to I I know that there are other sequential badges. There's the bronze star, the silver star. The, I mean, Purple there are heart. Yeah. Well, right. So, I mean, different different materials and whatnot make sense. The one that messes me up, though, that feels very different is the iron pyramids emblazoned on the obsidian's robes. Yeah, that's that what doesn't confuses seem connected it for me. at all. Yeah, that's the one that really twists it because the other two seem to make enough sense where it seems to be, you know, a trophy, something that's earned, like you said, on the side of the society remnant. The the one that throws me off is the rim also using them because they don't really talk unless it's something that predates the fall of the society. Okay. But then again, so, it probably would have been mentioned before, maybe, but I maybe mean, not. I- if there's a connection to the rim, which there is in this, and there is in one of the other quotes, or is it 
two of the other quads? No, it's one, just this one, one of the other. This quads. is the only. Yeah, this is the only rimmed one. The, well, well, I mean, technically, there's, there's Atlas one. Atlas is saying it, right? So it's yeah. like, is it a rim thing potentially, or you know, exactly, exactly. But then, so, why would the dictator be giving it? So, hmm. yeah. But it, but connecting it to the rim, if that's, I am grasping at straws here. But if it has to do with the rim, they seem to be the sort of cross section between the society and the iron golds. So mm-hmm. that would be like, that'd be a good symbol for them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me, but the other quotes don't make sense for that. So I don't know. But PJ, iron, cold iron is master of men all. Yeah, I get that. And I am <laughs> on board with that. It's just iron pyramid just stuck out as something I remembered. And clearly there were other passages with it. So sure. You know. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. That and, was a fun bit of searching and finding. finding <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, um, the, uh, we've got our tools back. We'll put it that way. We've got our, we've got our search tools back. And from the, yes. uh, the magic of editing, I'm sure it sounded like a very succinct, quick conversation. Yes. Yes. Quite. Um, the, the conversation with Xenophon is also a very honest one, albeit one that you had at least kind of partially sniffed out, you know, how, how do you feel about his reveals between Atlas and that of Volsung Fa's origin, um, and kind of the whole conversation that goes down with, uh, with Xenophon on the front end. So as far as the conversation goes, he was way more cool and collected than I expected him to be. He was way more cool and collected than I was expecting to be at this point. I was really thinking he'd be more of a sort of sniveling weasel when confronted like this. But I guess things were just... Things had progressed far enough and they were already in motion. He didn't really have a whole lot to fear and he couldn't be really pressed for anything more. So maybe that's why he was so cool about things. But yeah, I, I was expecting more of a rodent when confronted to to kind of like shrink down in the same way that harmony did yeah even more so i wasn't expecting anything anything noble anything like bold i was expecting a complete breakdown of somebody who had become very very comfortable in his sort of background advisory role Or he doesn't really have to confront anybody. He doesn't have to be bold. He just has to be there. So he played that role very, very well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He he really does come off very spyish, you know. And he he kind of has this tone of like a James Bond villain in a way. Yeah, like, well, Mr. Bond. (laughs) Well, Mr. Ephraim, you're too late. You could join us if you want. Maybe it's even Sith-like, you know, where it's like, join us. Join the Zero Legion. But yeah, I mean, also Xenophon, like, offers that place among the Gorgons, among the Zero Legion, and obviously, like, dude refuses, right? And at that point, the Oscamani, twisted protohumans, crawl in the window, all while Xenophon thinks he's the most clever by turning the knob on his controller and rendering Ephraim unconscious via the previously removed heart spike, you know? Yeah. I don't really understand why he made the offer. 
Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me that he would make any sort of offer to Ephraim. Because he understands who Ephraim is. And I feel like he's been close enough to him to really understand what he stands for. And I don't think... I don't think I would trust him if he were to accept at all. I'd think that it was a means of dismantling things from the inside. Like mm. I, I would never believe that he would just accept that. I feel like the offer makes sense. And, and my short reason why is that I think that Ephraim ultimately is seen by Xenophon as an addict. And so like addict first and foremost. And so the most likely to fall back into his habits if he were given the drugs again and kind of everything else and hasn't really seen the real change in Ephraim instead okay. believes him to be kind of a gray through and through in a lot of ways. Also, he's an incredibly effective gray. He's one of the top three alive in theory. Top three alive or top three ever? What are the others alive? There's uh, Harmony. The, Harmony, uh, yeah. The dude in the uh, God, I'm going to remember his name in a second. Uh, the guy who taught harm. Sorry, did I say harmony? I meant holiday. Holy shit. I meant holiday. Yep. There it is again. Cause yeah, I went along Jesus, with it. That isn't. Yeah. So holiday. Uh, and then the guy Ron T. Flavinius who was in the desert with Lysander. Um, and then is he alive? Ephraim. Well, we don't know that, do we? I guess we don't. <laughs> Good point. But, <laughs> at the very least you know those those would be the three right yeah yep you're right but yeah so i mean known as some of the most effective like absolutely you you at the very least offer but yeah 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 it's good a, point it's a tough time but i i do i do see what you mean like it would always be a question which i think is also why atlas questioned it to begin with right like that's why he mentioned it to Xenophon and he was like, yes, definitely. Like he's definitely someone you should consider. So yeah, the scene with Steffi having skinned and killed the Scuggy that were loyal to Ephraim and trying to help her out fucking hurts, man. Oh, Turning on Osgard hurts and <laughs> Steffi finally seeing Xenophon for what he is, is a sting that I will never, never unfeel. The reveal that this Fa was also Ragnar and Steffi's father and that everything is just about to go so fucking terribly wrong hurts, man. This section. Yeah, Fuck. it all hurts. So my my progression in just this whole scene of revelations was basically like this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, shit. <laughs> and it just was a spiral. It was an absolute spiral of ex escalation of oh no's and fucking what the fucks. And everything just like crumbled. It was incredible to read this. It, it the feelings were insane. It hurt a lot, but it was so visceral. It was really really cool. In, in a lot of ways, it, and the reason that it hurts so much is like this is the entirety of what we've seen Ephraim build up to this entire book be torn apart. Yeah. With the exception of uh, Pax and Electra finally being saved. Like that is the one 
and like his reuniting with Volga. That is, that's all kind of the the solace that we get from what Ephraim contributed in the story. Yeah, yeah, Ugh. exactly. <clears throat> Everything hurts crumbles around it, and it's not his fault either. This is all this is all Sefi and Xenophon and Osgard's fault, right? This is paranoia's fault in the long run. Exactly, so, it hurts. So chapter 76, Ephraim, he who walks the void. We already knew that Volsung was as was terrifying as well as intelligent, but to see him in kind of his true majesty is a horrifying visage. He's got the metal throat, the spear saw that has the sharpened teeth and that we later learns disconnects in the middle. Uh, he's got the skull of all the Oscomani kings effectively in a rat tail that he's like dragging behind him, just like fucking oof dude yeah so i knew he was intelligent but i really didn't expect him to be so diplomatic i guess or well spoken Mm -hmm. that said the mine 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 was a great way to enter an enemy stronghold you know like yeah right i think it says he like gesticulates and like encompasses all of mars like yeah man Take it. You're, it's yours. Go for it. <laughs> it's yours. No one is going to even try. Because, <laughs> like, you're big. Yep. Because, um, like, you're big. Exactly. No, man, he is, like, an absolutely terrifying presence, though, in every way, shape, and form, right? Like you said, mm-hmm. the way that he commands the room, the way that he can be diplomatic, the way he's already won over the crowd, the way that he wins over the crowd, and then literal, also, martial prowess. Like, he is everything. Yeah. Yeah, he is uh, absurd. It is every, It's absolutely everything you need, on top mm-hmm. of a terrifying visage that backs it up with actual strength and ferociousness yeah he he asks a lot of questions as well and kind of builds up a lot of things and and questions the belief of the followers of sefi who are still there in the room but i think that there's kind of a thing that ephraim still continues to ask right and that is is he actually the father of ragnar and sefi has he like provided enough material evidence what what do you think i don't know if there's enough material evidence But you know what? I'm kind of inclined to believe him. Like, even if he's not actually their father, he absolutely embodies, like, their absurd lineage. He lives up to what I believe could be their father. I think that's just as important as actually being their father. You know? He's got the strength. He's got the craziness. He's got the the charisma. He's got the intelligence. He's got got everything he needs. Yeah, he's got enough to uh to at the very least convince everyone and that's all that really matters here right like he's won them over in every way Ephraim also points out something that he'd always missed and i think it's something that's kind of important and lurking in the backdrop of of kind of the series as a whole and that this wasn't just about earning respect but this was also about gender about elevating the males inside of the clan and having them redominate sort of the the matriarchy that was pressed upon them by the society as well and the idea that they respected the power held and felt as though they were robbed of it because of the society sending them off to the stars and leaving the women kind of in charge. What do you make of this assertion or assertion? Assertion? What the fuck? Assertion. How the? Where did that come from? Anyway, what do you make of this assertion? 
that's not even in the i just said that out loud yeah anyway <laughs> do you want to repeat that last sentence no just do it again uh it's not even in the notes dude i just made it up what do you believe? i don't remember what the fuck i said what do you think of that assertion what do you think of that assertion <laughs> <laughs> the realization and sort of changes change of perspective was pretty cool it was really kind of interesting because like you mentioned there have only been women because all the men had been taken so the women were the one leading and we we've seen alia we've seen sefi but we haven't seen any male leaders of the obsidian and it never really crossed my mind that that'd be a problem that'd be any sort of contention just because it was kind of accepted I, I think it would be a little bit disingenuous to not say that Ragnar wasn't a leader of the Obsidian. He wasn't. But he wasn't a matriarch. He no, was a he, leader. No, he, he wasn't. He was a spiritual leader. Oh, he, no, he, 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 was, he was a martyr. He was, he was a... Later? Well, no, he, was, he wasn't a leader, though. He never he led was. any tribe. He didn't he lead was a tribe, herald, he led... He was heralded as a great example and, and somebody to follow, but he wasn't a leader. Which, which is still arguably uh, all that I wanted to clarify. Then to to clarify is that he isn't. He is a leader. He's a martial leader. He's the he fills the male yeah. role that society placed on him. That the society placed on him. Right, right. but it, he's still it's a no, leader. No official. He he wasn't filling any sort of official um, position. He just was a good dude and was somebody to strive to be toward to be like. But he, he didn't have a position of leadership within the Obsidians, right? I think that's a toughie. To your point, though, in Ragnar, I feel like he is is a leader, but he's not like a political leader, right? Like he's not an appointed yeah. position. That's, he's that's he's a commander. Yeah, yeah, right. He He's not in a position of leadership, which is what Alia and Sefi are. Mm-hmm. So, And we haven't seen a male in a position like that officially right yeah so of course naturally i mean everyone else has been like throwing off the reins of the society in some aspect right or what's been forced upon them or trying to trying to figure out how to break that collar and so it's only natural that obsidians might turn that around and look at this sort of inherited matriarchal system and be angry about it um but at the same time you don't see that same sort of pressure coming from you know the other colors in the same kind of way because obviously this is just a political move more than anything else him to uh claim power yeah. make the repressed kind of join his side for sure ragnar's mention as well here you know in respect of like tier and the respect of tier morga Sefi's, you know named for darrow the morning star is an interesting little side tangent worth a brief mention i think it, it feels like he's obviously faking kind of respect to help garner more followers from the groups of the loyal freed obsidians right i mean like i i say faking to really mean he's using it as a tool. He may he may respect what's done, but ultimately, a lot of these people believe in the rising in some capacity. They don't believe in the society remnant, and he is a society remnant tool. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm completely on board with you. Yeah. Because I, I don't think it's faking respect, but I think it is faking um Like alignment. intent? Yeah. Like it's it's almost like he's trying to make them feel like he's aligning himself with Darrow, or at least is in parallel with Darrow, as opposed to directly opposing him. Because I think there's a, there's a 
decent amount of truth to his respect for him because we see we see at the end when he calls Ephraim worthy like he respects strength and grit and intelligence and following through on those actions and yeah. that respect doesn't necessarily mean you're on his side it just means he he respects you he respects you as a, as an opponent but the way this is all spoken doesn't make Darrow seem like an opponent. And I, I think that he, it doesn't necessarily explicitly call him out as an ally either. But I think it wrongly alludes to that as a means of winning people over. So mm-hmm. that, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that that is totally what he's what he's going for. I think you, you nailed it by saying wrongly allude, alluding to that is he's using it as a tool to win those that like Darrow over with the intent of utilizing them to kind of fracture the Republic in a way to be, yep. you know, the Volkland, but to be a tool against, you know, the Republic. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that Steffi acknowledging that she was wrong about Ephraim and Osgard with, you know, her nod before entering into her duel with her father, I think is very important for my soul and appreciation for her character. Being able to admit that she was wrong in that moment, I think, is huge. She's always been wise, you know, quiet, of course, being the same word for wise in Nagal. But this last difficult choice that she makes is a really, really tough one to stomach. It is just a nod, right? Like, that's that's all. But that that's all she needs to say. I think it's important that she acknowledges that. That she makes a, some sort of amends with them. I think it, it proves her... It proves her nobility and um alignment and her intent it it proves that she wasn't so hard-headed to completely like ruin herself Mm -hmm. she got over she she got in over her head and she let things like pass her by a little bit without realizing it but that little bit of recognition kind of puts her a little bit closer to the to the uh, uh what would you call it the legend of her brother she'll never get there but it gets her a little bit closer you know? yeah i think to to that point i think what's so tragic about it is that no one is going to remember here who's gonna remember that's a good point like i think you're entirely right i think that that kind of in a way puts her at the very least on par if if there were a character of whom we're going to live through this and recall and see the explicit details I mean, Osgard later carves his other eye out. We're not sure if he lives or dies from the explosion, but one would assume that he's probably toast one way or another. Like, the guy's probably not long for this world. Right. Given, you know, his knowledge of Folsom Fa. So, yeah, I mean, ugh. That's, that's the really difficult thing for me here to stomach, right? Is that, like, no one except for us, the readers, are really going to know because Ephraim ends up dying and pretty much everyone else in the I mean, either in the room doesn't really care, doesn't see that, doesn't acknowledge that, or, um, you know, just doesn't, ugh, ugh, it hurts, Mm -hmm. man. It all hurts. Hurts. And she's, of course, also addled by the poison, right? Like, it's not as though even in in the best of health, she maybe couldn't have taken him, but she is extra fucked because she's been poisoned, you know? Like, she doesn't have the capability of dealing with this. Yeah, and they know that. Like, this is all the same group well because xenophon fucking did it like that's the worst part right like and i love that even this this goes back a little bit like he admits that like amel was another assassin set by set by atalantia to do the same thing right and like take care of him and just kill kill her outright but atlas was like no 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 we have a better plan and so killed her assassin yeah which 
is i mean great and a great way for xenophon to buy in that you know intent it worked it worked super well it worked brilliantly (laughs) that's that's how we got to where we are right now yeah fucking crazy fuck man it's it's so so awful Ugh. Mm-hmm. so yeah i i mean now we get to talk about the first of the hard deaths that happened this week so we didn't really acknowledge this that much on the front end of the episode but your your drink obviously is kind of a tribute to both mine is a tribute more to um more to Sefi than it is to Ephraim a little bit but mm-hmm. it, it fits for both of them also now that the um like ice cube the whiskey cube that i had in here has melted a little bit and the wings are just floating there in the water it kind of looks like an angel with its head rolling around which also fits and is fucked yeah um it's both <laughs> so speaking of Sefi's death is truly the most horrifying thing in the series, I think, up until this point for me. The description of her being carved from behind, flayed like a fish, lungs thrown out, heart eaten over the course of two minutes, her, you know, the the shoulder blades flayed upwards, and her just being hacked out to the spine for a long fucking time, and all those wet thuds and everything. And the, the fucking worthy of it all at the end is just the nail in the coffin as... You know, she, of course, says to him in kind of those last moments, Tyr Morga will eat your heart. And her final calling of Hirgla Ragnar is just so tough, man. It's yeah, it's pretty fucking fucking hard. Yeah, it's but I don't know if I could ask for anything better from her. You know, like she she goes down with a fight. True. All right. Yeah. Like she she embodies she she doesn't give in to her ailment. She puts up whatever fight she can. Yeah. Yeah, she does the best that she can, for sure. And that's, unfortunately, nowhere near good enough against her own father. Of course not. Yeah. Fucking ouchie mama. Ouchie mama. I it hurts. Go- I, I don't know if that's what I would have gone with, but, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. I already went there, so it's too late. I, I can't recant. <laughs> no, you can't. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, up until this point, this is definitely the most horrifying death in the series i think oh man hmm leah Aaliyah's death is or it leah Aaliyah. I, I thought okay there's Aaliyah, the mom no. of the two of no, them not that one leah yeah leah where she's just Leah's slaughtered in the <laughs> in the darkness yeah leah's is pretty bad for sure quinn's isn't great quinn's quinn's isn't great either but this is this is like three layers higher than that, you know, like Ulysses is pretty bad, too. Ulysses is very recent and very bad. Yes. Yes. At least Sefi's is honorable. She fights. She puts up some sort of fight. It doesn't make it good, but I feel like it makes it a little bit better. Not good either way. Uh, here's to Sefi. Here's to Sefi for sure. Rip. Rip. So with that chapter 77, Ephraim Worthy. A couple of eagle-eared fans noticed that a couple weeks back, I said a few times that Ephraim was proving himself to be worthy of Pax's loyalty of the kids and whatnot and sort of of his his title and station. And they knew exactly where this was headed. And oh boy, did I get a bunch of fun messages. <laughs> you rat bastard. <laughs> what I knew the exactly fuck, man? what I was doing. <laughs> of course you did i don't remember it like i didn't you did it well enough that it didn't stick out with me so there's that i i 
I remember one of the times being um, during the uh, hunt of the dragon, and I said that, that he back? was worthy to make the kill. Yeah, that was there was one all the way back there. There there have been a few, but yeah, I've I was I was all about it, man, in kind of the worst way. That's I feel like a dick, hilarious. but at the same time, no, no, don't feel like a dick. That's hilarious. <laughs> Like that's absolutely the kind of Easter eggs you drop on me. Yeah, yeah, it's um, oof, oof. It's like I've been we've we've made it this far in the book series, and nothing's been spoiled. I can play around a little bit in the sandbox, right? Like this is kind of a funny joke for the people who know, but if you don't know, it doesn't fucking matter. So yeah, <laughs> oh, it was it was oh, it was funny. good. It was good. It's pretty funny. But the the metaphorical question that Ephraim asks here, I think, is kind of worth pondering. Was Sefi all that was keeping the Obsidian War Machine at bay? Was she the only one that was trying to get them to all live for more in their own right? You know, it, it's it's something that he points out with a very simple quote as well that I think is very applicable. How easy it is to follow a pointing finger. Um, what, do, what do you think? What do you think of Ephraim's thought there? So... I think Sefi was in this really unique position. She's kind of at this intersection between tradition, honor, and lineage. And that is an extremely difficult cross-section to like completely replace. Really kind of a difficult mm-hmm. position to fulfill. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think he's correct in that effectively she's the only one that could do it. She's the only one that could bring them this together and this far forward all at once. That said, Volsung Fa kind of has all that going for him as well. So now he's wrong. He's got the same lineage. He's got strength beyond everything. He doesn't have the necessarily the same tradition and honor, but he's got what Obsidian look up to. And he's smart. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, he can... He he can unite the obsidian and push them towards something. It's not going to be what we want them to be pushed towards, though. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the same direction that Zephy was pushing them. But I think he can do it. Well, I, I believe that he can. Right. I guess my question is more like, were the obsidians always intended to go this way? You know, like, were they really just following and pointing finger this whole time? And they're either so malleable that they, you know, go in whichever direction they're pointed or... Mm. They were so not okay with sort of Sefi's leadership that it was okay for them to, you know, jump on this bandwagon. Well, there w- there was always defector sections, especially mm-hmm. with Alia when she was trying to garner more more of a followership, I guess. But even with Sefi, like there there were people that pushed back. She just kind of had what it took to to convince people to join. Okay, but I think. It's not quite the same. I think you're right. There there are a lot that just kind of follow who they're told to follow because they don't have the same independence that some of the leadership does. But I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily true for the entire population. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It's a really interesting question, though. That's a. Hmm. I, I think I, it's. I, I think it's a, a difficult one more. to answer. Right. Like, it, yeah. yeah, I would agree with you. I don't think that we can so firmly answer because really it's it'll it'll be about the aftermath of what they see happen under, you know, under FA. And then I think we can really answer that question. Um, mm-hmm. 
because we'll know whether or not they were following a pointing finger or whether or not they're more apt for morals or if they were, you know, obviously misled like they were entirely, you know, kind of the, the way that that swings. But right. I think that Ephraim's perspective at the very least is interesting for sure. Yeah. So Xenophon re extends his offer and Ephraim rightly refuses and degrades the white further as they are and always have been a sack of shit to our boy and i I really just kind of love this section where he's like absolutely fucking not you piece of trash kind of like goes through all the different reasons um you know that that he dislikes xenophon as far as like re-extending the offer for him to join join the gorgons effectively right like that's what Mm -hmm. that's really what he's offering yeah, Legia Zero, the Gorgons. Like I mentioned before, I don't think it makes sense to believe that Ephraim wouldn't be just a complete turncoat in that sense. So it, it feels weird to make that offer. But that would have been a really cool inside man story, a, a different inside man story, just to see see where it gives a perspective and gives a point of view that we're familiar with within another faction. Would mm-hmm. really cool to see. Yeah, would have it would have kind of opened up the world in a in a different and interesting way to have him be kind of the, a spy behind the lines. Um, but again, I think like you said, in in some context or another, we'd always be waiting for Ephraim to turn, and that might make it a little bit less believable or like harder for it to go on for a long time. Although to some degree, he's kind of played that fiddle this whole time, you know, with the Obsidians. He hasn't really been on their side entirely. He's always been for the kids, um, but, you know, not strictly against them. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of quandary to be caught in. Of course, the real terror is that of Volga, you know, of this idea that he is going to be molding or potentially could mold his granddaughter into something else, something new, something that terrifies, you know, and that is this visage of what he wants for the future. For Ephraim, I'm not sure that there could be a worse idea that Volsungfa plants in his head right now at this point. I don't think there's any part of this situation that's being like presented that isn't terrifying. (laughs) I mean, fair point. Fair point. But at the same time, I'm really curious what Volga would actually do in that scenario. Mm -hmm. what What would she actually bring to the table? I don't know if she could be really broken and molded like he's positing. Like, I, I think she would even even on the down low bring something good to the table it'd be really interesting to see yeah hmm it i don't know how this is gonna go i think volga would bring something good to the table but i think ultimately that would either be beaten out of her or she'd be killed and then you'd just have more kids you know like i don't think that that's unreasonable assumption an unreasonable assumption at this point yeah you know yeah that's probably true i mean there's obviously something to being the daughter of ragnar right that he would want to use to as much of an advantage as he could, but I don't know if that'll, if that could happen properly. Yeah. At the same time, we've got Volsung Fa, who, as far as we can tell, is the, as far as he's claiming, is the strength, is the source of the strength of Ragnar. And Ragnar is the source, source of the strength of Sefi, or not of Sefi, mm-hmm. of uh, Volga. Wouldn't it be better? to just have more kids as Volsung, they would be more potently his as opposed to being two generations removed. 
unless that's not a possibility anymore for him. <sighs> that's a good, good question. Hmm. And maybe it's just, I don't want to wait 20 years for them to mature. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've waited a decade right between kind of the story. So I I think it's likely that everything needs to happen a little bit faster. And so to take her in would be a, a good way to make sure that everyone continues to agree by saying, Hey, here's the daughter of Ragnar and, uh, kind of pushing that forward regardless of people's beliefs in, in him and what he did out in the rim and sort of the the you know you could see like his past in a way maybe coming back and biting him or like other people fighting him and saying like well you're not you are an iceborne but you didn't you weren't like you're exposed to the ice you're exposed to the society but like you went to the coupier forever ago and built your name out there or what have you so you're not a real obsidian you know kind of a thing could happen but it could. There's potential for that. It seems unlikely, but yeah, it does. I don't know. My sad little bow tie orange is staring at me from the bottom of my glass now, oh, floating good. alone. Oh, good. So we we get another fantastic quote, and perhaps actually, I I don't think it's perhaps. I think one of our last fantastic quotes from Ephraim. Hey, Milky, you like riddles? What do you call a piece of shit with a bomb in his pocket? And. <laughs> <laughs> the room explodes as the bomb that Paxgrid goes off from the heart spike, tearing him apart, tearing Xenophon apart, tearing the room apart, breaking Ephraim's spine and body and blowing away one of his arms. He has a quiet moment of contemplation, reflecting on his death and being reunited with his love Trig before Fa, injured but not dead, rips out Ephraim's beating heart, whispers worthy into his ear and takes a bite out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. Um... <laughs> just from a like yeah that's pretty fucked it's really fucked it's really it's very fucked, fucked. it's sad. um but just from the perspective of like reading this this was super excited to read or super exciting to read um but as soon as he started describing being flung through the air and how his spine was broken and how shit was happening i'm like all right so he's still conscious and still alive which means he survived this to an extent, which means absolutely Volsung Fa survived this. And then he stepped into frame fine with like a melty face. But mm-hmm. yeah, man, yeah. fucking brutal. Yeah. And from torn apart by the explosion, this last ditch effort to save Volga and sacrificing everything and dreaming of Trig in this moment and kind of having these these thoughts. I mean. I, just to kind of back up a little bit to talk about it, Volsung leads this scene with the fact that Ephraim is not worthy of a death at his own hands, and so Xenophon's going to be in charge of killing him. And I, I think that's obviously interesting, of course, considering the last word said during this week's reading is worthy, right? So he ends up kind of earning that worth through yeah. his his sort of tricky actions. Yeah, this to me kind of proves the true level of intelligence and horror that is Volsung Fa. He recognizes yeah. the sacrifice that F made and decided that it was a strong enough, honorable enough, great enough sacrifice to be considered worthy to die at his own hand, or I guess teeth or whatever. I, I don't know. Um, it it was to get weirdly, his heart eaten out. Yeah, yeah, literally. Um, but it it was. It was weirdly touching. Like I, I don't, I don't understand what my feelings were when reading this. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad you recognized like the greatness that Ephraim exuded while you fucking brutally ate his internal organs while he was still 
conscious. Everything was ridiculous, and I, I still don't know how to feel. It's, yeah. This is the death that I have the most trouble with in this book so far that we've we've kind of discussed or talked about um, or talked about. And I, all the, I'm not saying that to say that there are more deaths in the future that we'll talk about more. All that I mean is that, like, so far, out of all of them, this is the one that strikes me the hardest. It also says none of these characters are safe, like truly. The Virginia thing, of course, kind of like you'd predicted at first, felt like it had this air, aura of like uncertainty about whether you know Virginia was actually dead or not because we didn't see her die. We didn't understand that she died. We still um, didn't see Ephraim die, though. So we fucking saw his heart get plucked out of his chest and eaten like a grape. Like we mm. saw him die. <laughs> no, we didn't. He's still oh, conscious my. at the end of this section. <laughs> yeah, I'm murder you. <laughs> I'm gonna murder you. <laughs> But um, to, I did pour I for Ephraim. I did pour another shot of vodka for us to uh, commemorate him with. So if you do our uh, our what Benedictine for him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I uh, I think that since you know we have both Sefi and Ephraim as main characters here, we'll maybe let's do our rip in a in a second here. We'll do it at the very end. Um, okay. Yeah. So just one more question, and then we'll do that. Perfect. And we'll do what what favorite scene um god doesn't have to be like specific to the quote um was there something else what what else was there one other thing no i have no idea god i feel like that's something like that we'll just go through the reasons that we like him mm-hmm. neat okay uh so kind of the the final thing to talk about here with ephraim that you know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a second with kind of our in memoriam but Ephraim contemplating what's going to happen and comparing it to the death of Trig already in his head really, really eats at me, dude. Like we we obviously had the earlier part of the section where he he is at, in front of Trig's monument, seeing it, talking about it with Volga. Um, but him comparing this to Trig and sort of that sacrifice as he's sitting there, especially as we know that he's changed and grown and completed the cycle with his Atia, that tribe that he's made for a character that's been suffering for so damn long. This is an incredibly hard moment to stomach because it's kind of he's Trig sacrificed himself to save Darrow. Right. And he, in Ephraim, in his last moments, is sacrificing him for something that he views as similarly huge in his own mind where Trig was successful. Ephraim fails. Yeah. And Ephraim is a POV character and he fails and he dies. And that is hard and tough. Ugh. Ugh, hurts yeah. me man yeah um but also uh, i think through all of this i think this is the kind of man that trig would have wanted ephraim to become for sure yep at the very least at at the very least this is the kind of man that trig was aspiring to be himself and we know we know ephraim joined the rising after trig died as a means of kind of honoring him but it, his heart wasn't really in it in that sense. He he was in it for Trig. He wasn't in it for their actual like meaning and their goals. And he he didn't buy in. And I think he got there with all of this based on we didn't know a whole lot about Trig firsthand, but we know a decent amount secondhand, and we know a little bit firsthand. And it seems like this is kind of the the end goal for what what I would have assumed Trig would want for Ephraim. And it's it's cool to see. It's 
Yes, I agree that this is definitely the end that Trigg would have wanted for Ephraim or the the way that he wished that Ephraim would have lived his life, right? In yeah. sort of this this positive and f- fulfilling way. I, I totally agree with that. I think that it's just unfortunate that this moment, this choice of which is positively affirming for the way that Ephraim's life has gone also happens to be immediately correlated with failure. I I don't know if that I don't know if I agree with that. Because if you're going to attribute that, if you're going to attribute this as a failure for Ephraim, you also have to attribute the fact that Aja didn't die as a failure for Trick. Um, he no. Su- Darrow survived, yes. But also, Ephraim took out a whole lot of high-ranking people in in the in Volsung Fa's inner circle. Like, he didn't take out Volsung Fa altogether but he took out a lot of people i mean he took out some people he didn't he didn't take out many people it was a small bomb like he didn't clear out the the full giant hall that they were in right like six or seven people there though that went flying yeah and i would agree that that was fairly insignificant versus his intent which was saving volga right like yeah his his intent here was to wipe out fa so that volga would net that would never happen to volga what fa went through in fact his sacrifice didn't do anything except for kill xenophon and a couple of other people you know like yeah you're right and himself you're right that's that's what's tragic to me but i think on a character level i think you're right i think he made the right choice i think that he went through a lot of the kind of correct decisions and i think in a lot of ways his his choice is justified it's a tragedy though that it didn't accomplish fully the ends that he meant to however Mm -hmm. that's not to say that his sacrifice won't go on to mean more like martyrdom is a thing right so like it it absolutely you obviously the song of eo has more or the song of persephone rather has it has more of a meaning now than it did right when she died Mm-hmm. And it's it's become more over time. So in the same way, it's not to say that the sacrifice won't mean more down the road. But right now, it feels very raw. Yeah. I can only imagine, and I absolutely believe, that he will get another commemorative statue, monument, whatever you want to call it, next to or within the same monument as Trix. If I were a betting man, this this would be what I would say, right? We're, we're talking about Mars. And we've had two different two different greys die, of whom were fiancés and are significant in their own way. We we've got the monument for Trig over in Attica. I think that we get the monument outside of the Griffin Hold for Ephraim in the end, maybe. You know, and maybe they're pointing at each other. Maybe they're looking in the same direction. Okay. Yeah, I think they've got to be connected somehow, though. Yeah, right. Like they've they've got to be looking at each other or something like that. That's what I would say. Not that you know. Not that the other way and like building it close would be a problem. I think that's also great and putting them next to each other and kind of letting them be, you know, the the lovers of whom lost. Uh, which, by the way, this is all assuming he's dead, which is not explicitly stated. Oh, my God. Dude is so fucking dead, PJ. <laughs> you don't know that. All right. Crossing. So we're going to do our in memoriam. <laughs> I've got an entire shot of vodka for him. All right, so we've got two decent in memoriams here that need to happen. Um, poured just since we're approaching the end of the episode, of course. Uh, we've got both Sefi and Ephraim. So to start, um, cheers to both of them. To start mm-hmm. off here, I want to say uh, that Ephraim, despite 
starting off in my very first read of Iron Gold, not exactly liking him, grew to be one of my favorite characters in the entire series. And um, I'll always remember that change very fondly. And I think that he is worthy of his POV throughout the story. Absolutely. I agree. Do you anything to say about Sefi? Sefi is, is what I would have expected Alia to be. She, she was a leader based on intelligence and actual wisdom and not by brutality or by deception. She deserved her following and earned mm-hmm. it. And I, I, I think more than anything, that's that's something to be praised. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think that in in a lot of ways, um, Steffi not only earned that place, but she kind of earned her marks among the howlers, and then changed it into something and understood that her people were being disrespected and that they needed to leave the military and that forming the Volkland was the right move in every way, shape and form. She just had too much faith in people because the people that she had faith in before were upright and, you know, stood upright, upright people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Any other thought on, or any, um, send off for Ephraim. Only thing easy is entropy. Only thing easy is entropy. It was yeah. a, one of his quotes from early on in iron gold, but it is actually a quote from we're very, very clearly comes as a quote from Anton Chekhov. Um, only entropy comes easy was his quote. So I, I can only assume that was pulled straight from that, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the man, the one that I love from Ephraim is when he, you know, basically says that they've, but men and women just like that bitch walk the worlds because the people holding your leash couldn't follow through should have put a gray as sovereign at least we would finish shit and uh shortly thereafter says you know just changed out leashes and i think that that's important in a a way of context of looking at how a lot of people think about you know the series rather ephraim's place in the series as a whole the way that he kind of grows and changes to understand Mm -hmm. life a little bit differently so yeah yeah all right Cheers, Downey the Hatch. Cheers. Um, any other thoughts? Any favorite scene? Anything like that? Hmm. What was your favorite moment with Ephraim? God, there's a lot. I know, right? God, there's a lot. I think when he's being completely and utterly open with Lyria, hmm. even though he's being Philippe, um, early on when he he's he's really opening up with her without actually opening up i think yeah. that was a really cool experience when they're sitting in the park or whatever yeah and, both the park and the yeah. restaurant i think yeah at different yeah. times yeah. yeah exactly those those are both fantastic moments yeah to to counter your moment um with uh something that i really enjoy about ephraim i agree with you i think that ephraim kills serious moments but on top of that he is fucking hilarious right and i can't help yeah. but think of um ephraim and hilarity without thinking about the fucking mop scene in this book mm. when he's high as a kite and holding up a mop when he thinks it's a rifle and he's going through this whole heroic trip um, that will forever stick out in my brain is just a, a fantastic, fantastic little scene, fantastic little moment. But yeah, yeah for sure. I'm with Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Funny dude. Funny dude. 
Mm-hmm. Um, anything else you want to say about Ephraim? No, I think we've said a lot. And All I right. think we've said enough. All right, cool. Well, big rip, big rip to the dude. Start off not not loving him and then have grown to not only appreciate him, but also appreciate him earlier because, you know, like you said, the vulnerability there is um, is a really big deal. So, mm-hmm. all right. With that, we'd generally move into PJ's predictions. But PJ, there really isn't anything to predict because do this. So? Do you think Ephraim survived? <laughs> I mean, you can predict that if you want. <laughs> no. But... no, I don't think he did. I think we just continue. Yeah. So <clears throat> no, <coughs> excuse me, no strict predictions for this week, but we've got some that are carrying forward, of course, and I have a bevy of them for you next week going into the end of the book. So oh, I've got good. three that are sitting there in the document that have been waiting for us to get to part four for a very long time. So wonderful. Very excited. Um, with that, we will move into our question of the week. So last week's question is, what's your favorite revenge story and why? Kick it off. Yeah, we've got from Tim Pearson. Damn, that's such a difficult one. I'm probably going to say The Count of Monte Cristo. It kind of defined a lot of the standards for a revenge tale, I feel like. Plus, it's extremely satisfying to have a protagonist take have a protagonist take revenge but also learn it's not the way. How did I escape? With difficulty. How did I plan this moment? With pleasure. But then you have stuff like Hamlet, Carrie, pretty much every Tarantino movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's a great call. I, I cannot help but agree, of course, with, uh, I mean, like, Carrie, uh, literally every Tarantino movie, for the most part, features some form of revenge. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things, like the correcting the ultimate wrong against you you know Django fits in here pretty cleanly as well um and of course hamlet and fucking stole mine but that's okay <laughs> by that i mean carrie which was mine but to the point of the count of monte cristo ivana also says the count is always my answer lately that's why i'm staying quiet for this one well the fact that you put an input means that you didn't stay quiet so it's right here in the episode just for you Mm-hmm. Just for you, look at that. But I uh, agreed. I mean, Count of Monte Cristo is a legendary story about revenge, so it's it's hard to say. It's also a legendary story about escape. <laughs> so how did I get all the paragraph ones crossed? Out? <laughs> you know, from Cold Blooded Double O Seven, I'd nominate Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride for best revenge story. He's right. That's absolutely true. And that was my answer until he posted that. So. I have a different one. <laughs> we we actually uh, last week on the live show talked about the Princess Bride at length for about two and a half hours um, with all of our patrons, and it was it was a it was a great time. Or to, uh, our mixologist tier, mixologists rather. Yes, we do um, a monthly live show where we talk about something specific, and this month it was Princess Bride, and uh, this completely organically came up without knowledge of that so that was kind of yep yeah very very funny um but absolutely adore inigo montoya you killed my father prepare to die (laughs) it's it's great so with that god i keep saying that i gotta stop that snowbean says my favorite revenge story book wise is red rising there's so many good ones within the main revenge arc there's fitcher's revenge against the jackals or even the jackal's petty revenge against his father is so good it's it's the book series that i read whenever i'm in a mood 
But cinema, cinema wise, wow, that's not. I did not say that. Cinema wise, <laughs> cinnamon buns. Cinnamon buns for sure. It's AOT Attack on Titan. It's so phenomenal. Aaron Yeager is such an angry child who had to grow up far too fast. You want to like him. You want him to win. You can see everything he's doing and the reasoning behind it. But the revenge twists him and turns him into a villain. It's amazing. I am in the middle of Attack on Titan, so I'm very excited to uh, to proceed. I'm almost done with the second season, but mm-hmm. yeah. My dad started watching it and I was like, fine, I'll do it. And then I was like, I can't stop. Somebody stop me. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. And of course, I might, I might Red Rising has a hysterical number of revenge arcs. <laughs> so much of these books, it's just, yeah. I have to get back at you. Even like Cassius and Julian Tadero, right? Like that's a huge revenge arc for the original trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, another patron, we've got Artificer shawshank because it was filmed right down the road from me i don't know if that counts as a reason (laughs) i guess it does i guess it's a reason i think it's interesting also to call shawshank a revenge film because i don't think of that as the first thing about it right but it, it does it does fit it is it is a film that has revenge kind of elements inside of it but i wouldn't say it's strictly a revenge story you know but it's applicable to a Yeah, extent. yeah, right. Revenge against the ex-wife and, and those components are definitely there, but it's, you know, that's not strictly the point. It's almost more about, you know, liberation. Yeah. In its own way. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Cross, what have you got for yourself? So here's the thing. I've got two. The first one has already been mentioned. It's Stephen King's Carrie. I think that Carrie is a fantastic revenge story of which almost, I mean, it is it is a story that has revenge elements. My trouble with Carrie, rereading it, I read it probably once every two years or so at this point, um, is that it kind of has a connotation or a feeling of like school shooter vibes. The woman who's been wronged definitely has all of the wrong. She she is getting revenge against her mom. But the only reason that she externally turns it into rage is because she's been pushed so far. And I think that there are so many different components there that happen with kids of whom are cited as school shooters and go and they, you know, like the bullying problem and that extension with alienation and everything else is is certainly an issue. Um, so I, you know, I, I love Carrie. I love the book. It obviously predates a lot of kind of the big events that happen that way. And it makes a lot of sense in terms of bullying and, and making sense of kind of the high school situation. And I think it's a revolutionary book, of course, for the the horror genre and mm-hmm. kicked off my dude Stephen King's career. But the one that I would pick in addition to that is Gone Girl. The book is fucking amazing. The movie is fucking amazing. And it is a story of revenge on a cheating husband who is, you know, just completely loveless in their marriage. And they lost interest in each other because he was kind of venturing off and lost ambition and lost all these other things. And I I think it's just a fantastic story about a Mm -hmm. a very different kind of revenge. And so that third mentioned the cask of Amontillado, because I think that's classic classic revenge edgar Allan poe man can't can't not there you go yeah um what's yours my answer is i i decided to take a little bit of a different look at it um 
Because I don't know if it's technically explicitly a revenge story, but it feels like it. And it's set up that way, even though sure. it's not quite true. But AP Bio mm. and, and Jack's entire story arc, it is not revenge, but he feels like it's revenge. He feels wronged by his colleague and he feels like he deserves the he he is his entire acting especially upon the first season his entire arc is based on the idea that he is getting revenge on his colleague when revenge is not really exactly what he's getting if you haven't watched ap bio it is hilarious it is wonderful it is awesome it's one of my favorite shows and it's a revenge arc that isn't actually a revenge arc but it feels like it and he believes it to be it, it's so interesting because i i totally agree with you i think that it is intended to be a revenge arc in the way that it's meant to be but it's almost like he's getting catharsis instead you know yeah. from kind of the experience of teaching that's the kids exactly and, what it is yeah it's right like but 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 also it, it's a delusion it's a delusion that he has that he is at odds with this person and this person loves him and yeah. sees him as a friend and didn't like wrong him in any way. He just f- got lucky. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah. So good. It is. It is very interesting. I would, I would agree with you. I think what's genius about it too, is that like it, it could, this is an example of a show that like literally could go on forever uh, because you just like rotate out the cast of kids and he could like continue to like struggle <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Um, but I think it would be best served by a short life, like five seasons or so. That way you can kind of see the end through graduation or whatever of, of several of these yeah, kids. I don't know if you even need to go that long. I mean, you could just do four, right? Like they're yeah. currently on. They're three. on the fourth. Yeah. I, uh, they've released three so far. I'm Got assuming, it. Got it. Okay. I'm I've only watched the first two so far. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, great. Great call. Love, love the show. That makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. So, PJ, you want to read next week's? Uh, next week's question. What is your favorite earned, quote unquote, earned death? So, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, earned, earned death, meaning, you know, ones, ones of glory, ones of history, ones of, you know, people, people who've either deserved it because they're awful and vile um, or people who have, you know, earned it because they significant martyrdom. Yeah, significant martyrdom. That's a good call. Um, you know, I, I thought that this would be an interesting way to kind of honor Ephraim in its own right. And, uh, you know, yeah. think about think about that over the next week. So mm-hmm. with that, next week we read eight chapters, chapters 78 through 86. It is our penultimate episode. It's going to be very exciting. Something that I want to announce a little bit right now is that we're going to have a small adjustment on the schedule. We are still doing our to-be-announced guest episode, of which actually I just got the final booking confirmation time, so woohoo. Uh, <laughs> um, so, very exciting. We're so pumped for that. Uh, our wrap-up episode that we're going to hear, we'll have here, we'll announce that next week. But in addition, we've got two, at least two more guest spot episodes that are going to have, happen after that before we start the comics. So you'll see a slight shift in the schedule. So if you still need to get in the reading for the comics, get in the listing for the comics, um, do it as you will. Very excited to do that. I think our plan, PJ, are we going to both listen and read the comics? We try to do that. 
I believe so. Okay, just so that we can get both experiences, I think that would be interesting. I have ordered the comics. They should be arriving within the next week or so. I have not bought the audio graphic. Gotcha. And I gave uh, my dad the comic books a couple of weeks ago so that he can read them before I get them back and read them again. Mm. So we'll, okay. uh, we'll get to that. But that'll be kind of the plan. And then as you may know, after we're done with Red Rising, of which we're approaching the end of, we are going to be reading Era 1 of Mistborn, meaning Mistborn, Well of Ascension, Hero of Ages. So in case you didn't know, Grab those if you want to read ahead, if you want to be ahead of us, which we've had a number of people uh, among a bunch of different you know, groups message us and say, hey, I want to read ahead. I want to be ahead of you guys so that I can experience this a second time through PJ's eyes and see how it feels again. Um, you know, do that. If you want to read along with us, uh, feel free as well to follow along. Yeah. That schedule should be up by early next week. I've got two more little things to iron out. You're I think locking yourself into that, huh? I am. Um <laughs> Because we also have to record our episode zero of that book. So so many episodes to record, Crossland. We do, but the episode zero is going to be easy. So, you know, and you don't have to read that much. So it's going to be fine. All right. Cool. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. Check out all the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our website, all of our socials, all in one, very convenient, very well plotted out place. Yeah. Fuck a link tree. Have your web designer design one for you that works way better and doesn't cost you $15 a month. (laughs) Again, (laughs) thank you, Tim. Uh, It is such a pleasure, of course, to all of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us each month. We are very grateful. If you want to join our Patreon, you can do so, as PJ mentioned. Otherwise, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. We're right there. We've got three different tiers, one to interact socially, one to get our bonus podcast, and one to do some of the live stuff with us. So feel free to join at whichever tier. We love the support. We keep it ad-free for the time being, of course, uh, so that we can you know continue to keep us going. The Patreon is what allows us to do this the way that we do it. So thank yeah. you so much. If you're a little bit vain, you'll notice that we mentioned a bunch of different patrons' names during this episode. So you can get on on that if you if you have some suggestions and we take a liking to them. If you're fairly vain as well, all of their names are at the end of each of our episodes on the website themselves. That's true. So you can see who has supported each individual episode and some of them have fun nicknames. Some of them change their nicknames month to month. Um, there's a there's a couple of those that are that are just a great time. So we've got we've got a Doctor Mantis Toboggan MD. We've got a Big Turk. <laughs> we've got a Baby Theo. We've got a number of, of fun people having a good time. So thank you again so much for everything. It's awesome. Mm-hmm.